0: Interestingly, and we're talking particularly about Mexicans. Mexican immigration has been negative for about a decade. That is, we are
1: negative. So that is
0: to say that there are more Mexican immigrants leaving the United States annually, or I should say, over the period of the last decade, than coming to the United States. That is a crazy new demographic world if you've paid attention to immigration for the last few years, and it has meant going back to the internal diversity that the Mexican population internally is changing profoundly because there's been a decade. Of no immigration.
1: Is immigration from Mexico and Central America different from other types of immigration to the United States? Or is it actually remarkably similar in nearly every respect? I'm Duncan Minch, and you are listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you are new to the podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition. And the state of intellectual life in the United States. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Tomas Jimenez, professor of sociology and comparative studies in race and ethnicity at Stanford University. He's the author of The Other Side of Immigration How Immigrants Are Changing American Life. It was a pretty lively conversation. I was just really excited to discuss immigration history and all the many misunderstandings people have about comparative ethnic history with someone as informed and really thoughtful as Professor Jimenez. The interview was recorded in early October during his visit to Tempe. Tomas Jimenez. I hope you enjoy it. Let's start off fairly quickly. So Mexican-Americans are unique, and I'm trying to use as much of your own words as possible, for their vast internal diversity. But when I was reading that in your book, I was thinking to myself, well, when you define internal diversity, you define it by many waves of immigration, because it's certainly true that Mexican Americans have had as many or more than any other particular group coming to the United States. But I don't know, in terms of internal diversity, it strikes me that you could say that there are other groups, especially German Americans, who have nearly as many waves over the course of the 19th century, primarily, but then there are many waves in the 20th century that have a similar level of internal diversity. So what do you think of that?
0: I certainly agree that there are other groups that have lots of internal diversity. Mexicans are not unique in that general characterization. And you mentioned Germans, I would add to that. The Irish, I would add to that. Filipino population of many waves of immigrants. Polish immigration, especially to a place like Chicago, has come in multiple waves. But the internal diversity that marks the Mexican origin population, I would argue, is more multi dimensional and more drastic than some of these other groups. So if you take the German population, for example, one question you have to ask is what are the markers of that internal diversity? Is it linguistic? Not really.
1: Well, There's some in the 19th century, for sure. I mean, at that point, Germany isn't even a country. And there's quite a bit of internal distinctions and dialects between those groups. But I mean, not fair. Uh, enough. I mean, so actually, you might argue even more so in terms of linguistically for the 19th century.
0: Fair enough. Sure. There's still German newspapers in Pennsylvania. and Well, there were 450. And so this is what I study actually. Okay. So I study
1: German American. I should have given you a little bit yeah, of a preview. Yeah. Okay. I? So I study so I study German American history and there were four hundred and fifty German language newspapers in nineteen ten. Okay. Four hundred and fifty. It's by far the biggest internal publication industry and certainly in terms of public education networks also because there were thousands of first language German language schools yeah. throughout the Midwest.
0: So I guess what I'm thinking of is contemporary contemporary well, yeah, ethnic yeah, groups. Sure, but, sure. But it's actually really important to draw some comparisons because I think it helps tease out some of what's unique to the Mexican origin case, and then also some of what we can learn and apply to, yeah, yeah, sure, to other kinds of groups. So go back to the German case, obviously religious diversity, mm-hmm. that religious diversity is concentric with other waves of immigrants. So you know, think about internal diversity, you might think about Jewish internal diversity and wave of...
1: Well, that's another group I would say. I mean, but what I guess where I think the German population and the Mexican population are similar and different in certain ways, but there's actually quite a bit of similarities, is just how many waves there were. And then also German... Germans very much intended to keep their language, which Mexicans, and correct me where I'm wrong, I think in many instances have as well. And then there was a pushback in both instances to try and prevent that from happening, which was very successful in the German case and has been, I would say, less successful in the Mexican case. But then again, you should correct.
0: Me. Well, let's go back to the Mexican case. So the dimensions of internal diversity that I've marked off are partly due to the protracted wave of immigration that's now over. It's been over for a decade. So I'm lucky enough to write this book and that year, or I should say the year after it's published, is the end of mass Mexican immigration, which had gone on for virtually a century of uninterrupted, with the exception of the 1930s, uninterrupted Mexican immigration. But one of the really important, so there's generational diversity, there's diversity by legal status, which is incredibly important. and know we can mm. come back to that in a second and talk about how much that's changed even in the last decade. Linguistic diversity, you talked about. Regional diversity, so now, especially in the last generation, you have obviously substantial Mexican populations in the West and the Southwest, but now in the South, in the Midwest, Mexicans are the third largest immigrant group in New York City. So it's, it's vast geographic diversity. When did that
1: take? When did Mexicans become the third largest immigrant group in New York?
0: I don't know when exactly the year was, but it's within the last 15 years. And so yeah, that
1: seems fairly new. Yeah.
0: It is fairly new. Yeah, it is yeah. fairly new. The first influx of Mexican immigrants to New York didn't really start until the 90s. So there's all kinds of internal diversity. Language is an important one. You mentioned it is the case that Mexicans tend to be bilingual longer than other groups, but by the third what generation. What do
1: you attribute that to? Because Germans, I think, were especially interested in keeping their language until the 1910s when it was thrust upon them to not. But Mexicans, I think, have had a similar attitude, maybe even more so than, say, Italian Americans or other groups. And what do you attribute this to?
0: I don't know but I would attribute it to something attitudinal. If you look at survey data, and this is true not just for Mexicans but for immigrants in general, you know, like 90% think it's really important to speak English and emphasize it. I think it's actually kind of structural. And so part of it has to do with the availability of opportunities to speak Spanish. Some of that is our proximity to Mexico. And some of that is just the continual influx of Mexicans and not just Mexicans, but other immigrant groups from Latin America who keep the language alive. Having said that by the third generation, you're talking about somewhere in the range, 10 to 15% can speak Spanish. It's not that high. It's survives longer than other groups, but as my...
1: Well, but it might not have been that different, though, in the 19th century. I mean, I don't know if we have data like that from the 19th century or even necessarily the early 20th century, but my guess would be that it wouldn't be that different for a Uh, lot of these other groups. Yeah, it might not be. I think if you're guessing by the third generation, 10 or 15 percent don't speak the previous language. That sounds reasonable to me. And that seems like for most European immigrant groups, it would have been roughly the same. Yeah. And
0: maybe more importantly, one of the fears about immigration today is immigrants don't speak English. But by the second generation, virtually 100 percent... By adulthood, speak English well. When we talk about Spanish being maintained, it's alongside English. But as my colleague Ruben Rumbau, professor at UC Irvine, says, the United States remains a graveyard to non-English languages.
1: Well, absolutely. And the German case is the best similar example to Spanish yeah. because German is the largest national source of origin. At some point, might be surpassed by Mexican, but actually, the numbers are not as close as you think. They're pretty
0: high None, for German. No, yeah. I know that. If you look at the ancestry question, what? Census asked for a long time. It's now a part of the American Community Survey. The largest group, so the ancestry question, I should say, is one where you can write in your mm-hmm. ancestry. Mm-hmm. German is the largest group. Oh yeah, so by if you far.
1: Look, Irish is the only close second.
0: So if you look at color-coded map of the United States, this would be like the worst fears of Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. and well, even Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, the anti-immigrant Roosevelt, Roosevelt <laughs> right? Say during World War One, right? The kind of backlash of anti-German well, and rhetoric people, and activities. I
1: think people have very similar fears. Yeah, obviously we would have to put that same demographic map and it would be slightly different. Instead of the invasion coming in the upper Midwest, the so-called Rust Belt, which used to be called the German Belt by right. the way, yeah. right? it would be the Southwest. We don't have a belt for that, but I mean... We it's, should. We, we, we should maybe, have a belt. Maybe we, should. we should make a belt. We should, we should, we should, we should, we should dub one. Right okay. But I think people would have a very similar fear of all of the Southwest, obviously up into California, but you mentioned that Mexican immigrants are the third largest group in New York City, which is the second largest city, or maybe is it the first?
0: It's the biggest in the United States, not to mention huge populations in the Carolinas, in Georgia, in Nebraska, in Kansas. And I should mention some of those Midwestern places like Nebraska and Kansas have had historical waves of Mexican immigrants going back 100 years, but the more recent waves have been large. So those same fears exist today. Interestingly, and we're talking particularly about Mexicans, Mexican immigration has been negative for about a decade. That is, we are Net negative. So yeah. that is to say that there are more Mexican immigrants leaving the United States annually, or I should say, over the period of the last decade than coming to the United States. That is a crazy new demographic world if you've paid attention to immigration for the last few years. And it has meant, going back to the internal diversity, that the Mexican population internally is changing profoundly because there's been a decade of no immigration. One of the ways it's changed profoundly is in the proportion of the Mexican origin population that's undocumented. A decade ago, if you took anyone who claimed any Mexican ancestry, a quarter of those people were undocumented. A quarter of all people of Mexican descent, not Mexican immigrants. How far
1: away back did you say?
0: mean, oh, de- de- A decade ago. A decade ago. Yeah, Only a decade. decade ago. Yeah, and now it's 15%. If you go back to the early part of the 2000s, we were approaching half of the Mexican origin population was foreign born. Now it's less than a third. So the Mexican origin population is at steady state and it's maintaining steady state in terms of its size because of people being born in the United States. It's not because of immigration.
1: Well, So what do you though, the people who were going back to
0: Mexico. (laughs) So it started right after the recession. So part of it's economic. And then part of it was that many states, including Arizona, really soured. Arizona, in fact, was leading the pack in terms of states souring in their attitudes and their policies towards immigrants. And the policies were very loud. SB 1070, obviously, is the best known. But there were lots of similar proposals introduced in places like Alabama, Georgia, and that souring attitude. So they didn't
1: feel welcome to a certain extent. So it was both economic and not necessarily feeling like this is a place where I want to settle down.
0: Exactly, exactly. So the, the number of jobs were drying up, the attitudes were getting more negative and feeling less welcome. And then by some accounts, there is greater economic opportunity in Mexico. And so people are staying put. And then I think the other thing that's happening is that there's been a real change in the age structure of the Mexican population. So there's a big baby boom in Mexico in the early 1970s. And the men in that baby boom were reaching the prime working years during the 80s and 90s. And that's when, especially in the 90s, we saw a huge peak in Mexican migration. Now they're all too old. And so many are going back and retiring. Some people have been deported. Some people left because of dried up economic opportunity and the kind of more negative or less welcome that they were seeing both in terms of policy and attitudes. And now the population that exists in Mexico is staying put. And part of it has to do that the fact that that baby boom and people from that baby boom going to the prime working years are now too old. And, and what's behind is a population that's a steady state. Well, this
1: there strikes me that there's something else that might be going on. And this is, you should absolutely correct me because I think I've seen some things about this, but this is obviously not something I study. So it also seems to me that many of the places where Mexican-Americans would prefer to go, which is where other Mexican-Americans are living, right, have been some of the most hyper-urbanized areas, obviously Los Angeles, New York, and we've been going through over the last 15, arguably 20, maybe more years, this hyper-urbanization or re-urbanization might be a better word. And most of those areas have become incredibly prohibitively expensive. And if that's where you'd prefer to go, then you might just stay where you are if you look at that and you say, hey, look, maybe my circumstances really aren't going to be better in the United States. Maybe I should just actually.
0: I think that's a great point. That's a great point. One of the things that started happening in California in particular, California is the most popular destination from about the 60s on for Mexican immigrants. And then California was in a lot of ways Like Arizona a decade ago. It was, in terms of its policies, probably the most restrictive, unwelcoming state in the country. At the same time, there's a big recession in California, and California's never been cheap. And that sort of, as one sociologist says, deflected lots of Mexican immigrants to these new gateways to the Midwest and the South.
1: And Stu, don't you think, pivoting from this, that this is part of why you've seen some of the Trump nativist reaction? Because, and it isn't just Mexican immigrants, it's just primarily, I would say, immigrants from the South. Obviously, many of the people in the caravan, the notorious caravan, were not Mexicans. They were No, on, they were they, were cent- Honduras they were and, Central American. Yeah, they're from yeah. the Northern Triangle. But that's not necessarily probably how they're perceived by people who aren't necessarily interested in these intricacies. They're just perceived as, in quotes, Mexicans right. coming in. And maybe, since they're not going to these urban areas where they would prefer, their second de- destination is Nebraska.
0: Right. Or Georgia or South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. That could be part of it. I do think that, unlike a generation of go, immigration really is a truly national issue. In some ways, it's always been a national issue, but it's been heavily concentrated in certain areas, right? So 19th century East Coast corridor, to some degree, the upper Midwest. Well, they come in through the East Coast
1: corridor, but then the Germans go all the way throughout the Rust Belt region. And then that's what they, they're still 30% in most of the Rust Belt states, if not 50 in Minnesota and, yeah. and not Michigan, but Wisconsin. But so they come through a certain port, they come through Ellis Island, and then they go everywhere else.
0: But if we're talking about immigration writ large, it's an eastern corridor, Chicago, West Coast.
1: Oh, me, 20th century immigration is more, initially.
0: Exactly. Has been more coastal. And now I think this is part of the point you're making, that it is truly a national issue. And so some of what people are reacting to is the changes that are going on around them, not changes going on someplace else that they perceive. Having said that, there is, and some of this is anecdotal evidence, but it maps on to larger, robust findings in social science, which is that in places where immigrants have settled and have been for a long time and the established population that's been there and the newcomer immigrant population that's been there have a chance to interact with each other, the attitudes soften. So, for example, in the district that Steve King represents in Iowa, Steve King is one of the most restrictionist members of Congress and members of his own party would say has been kind of over... That's
1: maybe a polite word. Yes,
0: I'm being generous. Steve King has been, a member of his own party would say, racist and overtly racist. In that district when and during the 2016 election there was quite a bit of reporting and a lot of people who live in that district in Iowa say, and it's a place where lots of Mexican immigrants have settled, say a lot of these people have been here like 20 years. Our kids are going to prom together. My son plays basketball with their kids. They're next door our neighbors. They're our co-workers. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big of a problem. It's not to say there's not bumpiness in that adjustment. There always is. But in places where people have a chance to interact, I think they're working it out more smoothly than the caricatures in the immigration debate would lead us to believe.
1: I think that's demonstrably true in all kinds of different places throughout the country. It's hard not to understand how people fear the economic consequences, especially of low-skill immigration, especially when we're talking about illegal immigration. It's almost universally low-skill. And then it's probably not fair to say that most immigration from the South that goes through legal channels is low-skill. I would imagine it has to go through the same channels that everybody else does.
0: So it used to be that most undocumented, unauthorized Immigration was a result of people crossing the border without inspection. Now it's actually people overstaying their visas. It's the a majority, it's about 60%, are overstaying their visas. It is true that a lot of the immigration is low skilled, and you might define low skilled by like people who have less than a high school degree, but there is a non trivial share that is, and I can't confess to be able to quote you exactly that share right now, but it's a non trivial share that, that are what one might consider high skilled.
1: Coming from the South or specifically coming from Mexico?
0: So if the high skilled population would come mostly from Asia, East Asia. Well, no, I meant, oh, sorry. sorry, I was
1: just trying to define off and talk only about immigration coming from the South. So I would imagine that there are high skill immigrants coming from Mexico, that they're entering through the same channels as everybody else. That's right, yeah, yeah. That, so, that's what I was trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's right. And it kind of goes back to the our beginning of our conversation. Mexico is the third largest source of high-skilled immigration in the United States too. And it actually has been, a, as a proportion of the immigrant population, a larger share of high-skilled. But going back to what's driving fear about immigration, interestingly, it is, and there's pretty robust survey data on this and analysis, particularly from political scientists, but also sociologists, showing that the fears are actually driven by cultural change. It's not the economic fear that primarily drives anti-immigrant attitudes. It's primarily fears about changing culture and indeed changing status. And so part of the reaction and part of the reason why President Trump, I think, has been so successful in playing on immigration, unlike any presidential candidate in my lifetime, presidential candidates have rarely talked about immigration not to be a winning issue. But what became pretty clear in the last 15 years or so is that there was a growing anti-immigrant sentiment bubbling up among conservative whites and that Donald Trump was the first person to kind of go in and, I don't know, I kind of think of like a snake charmer, kind of play the tune that teased out those attitudes. Immigration's famously an elite-driven topic. And so he was able to make some hay out of that. And it plays to a 25 to 30 percent of the American electorate that's pretty anti-immigrant on all things. Well, they're rabid
1: about this things. But so have you watched the most recent Frontline about who are the main sources of the more restrictionist immigration policies? It just barely came out of them like the oh, last really? week, knew, maybe 10 days. I you might want check yeah, to check it out because basically the way it portrays it is the reverse of how you describe Trump as a snake charmer. It's more that he went out and he started giving these speeches prior to his testing the waters in early 2015, somewhere around there, or maybe it was, I forget exactly when in 2015. But he started giving these speeches speeches, and then realizing that there was this groundswell of support for it. So yes, he might have always been somewhat concerned with this as an issue, but it was more that he saw it oh, that's, that's coming, exa- coming from below and then realized he could seize on it rather than being the snake charmer to lead people to be concerned about it.
0: So maybe the snake charming metaphor was bad. I totally agree. And that's actually the point I was trying to make, that, that it was bubbling up and that he was able to capitalize on it. He just on capitalized it.
1: Yeah. on it. It's like Mao famously said, if you want to create a revolution, you don't form your own march, you find the existing march and you stand in front of it.
0: Much better than my snake trimmer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to to
1: pin down. I mean, obviously we're academics. We want to be very precise about how we describe stuff. No, I
0: think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I'm going to talk about this a little bit tonight, but you might get the impression that looking at the popularity of Trump among some people, and it's not just popularity, it's kind of rabid popularity, right? They're very enthusiastic popularity. That Americans have really anti-immigrant attitudes. And if you take American attitudes on the whole, they actually have what one might call centrist attitudes about immigration, overwhelming support for a legalization program. Overwhelming. 80% of Americans think that immigrants should be allowed to be on a pathway to legalization. You can actually get higher in some surveys if you qualify the question by saying, if they learn English, pay back taxes, and pass a criminal background check, you can get like 90% of Americans to agree that there should be a legalization well, it's program. it's part of our
1: culture. It's part of the American mythos.
0: Exactly. And so, and also the idea, and I've learned this in talking in my research and interviewing everyday Americans, that they feel like people who have behaved like Americans, people who are raising their family, people who are abiding by the laws once they're here, people who are making economic contribution, people who are good neighbors, if they're behaving like Americans, they should be recognized as Americans in the fullest. And you actually hear that from really conservative people and really liberal people. And so I think- Well, it's not like the
1: Republican Party was really all that different from the Democratic Party prior to Trump on immigration. I mean, that's, that's right. and that's what the front line really describes in good detail because it shows that this was a very specific group of people leading the charge and greatly from the outside. And it wasn't a very well organized and at least initially or well funded or large group.
0: No, that's a great point. If you go back and read the Democratic Party platform from the 1996 election, some of the language reads like it was taken from a Trump rally. It's really like we need to get tough on immigration. There's a land of laws. Legal immigration is really important. And it was, in fact, under Clinton, that we saw the massive militarization of the border, and we've continued to militarize the border, but his administration was the one that really militarized the border. And he signed into law some of the most restrictionist immigrants, especially in Well, Didn't Obama
1: deport more people than Bush?
0: The Obama administration, in its especially the first term, deported more immigrants than any administration in American history. For his first term, he was averaging close to 400,000 people a year. Trump is not even up in that range. Arrests are up, but deportations are not necessarily up. And then that changed in the second term. The conventional wisdom is that President Obama really wanted to pass comprehensive immigration reform, and Republicans and some Democrats have been saying, we got to get control of the border. We got to get control of undocumented immigration first. And so Obama thought this was a down payment. Like, let me show you what I'm doing. And in fact, by the end of his eight years in office, there were fewer apprehensions on the border than there had been in 40 years. The border is, in spite of the Central American asylum seekers and now more unaccompanied minors, that's spiking again. The number of apprehensions along the border are way down, especially if you compare them to the early 2000s. And so Obama thought this was going to be a down payment. And then there was no—it was clear that people who, particularly Republicans, who opposed any kind of immigration reform were going to take that as a down payment. And so he switched policies. I
1: mean, haven't we really just been pushed to two really— ridiculous corners and both sides where basically you have the left who's now open borders, which is positively ridiculous. And, and you talk to people about this and a lot of times they don't even realize it's ridiculous. This is a few years ago at this point, but when I was living in Austin, I went on a date with somebody who was in Latin American studies and it was like the first date or something. And, it, and this topic came up and she was talking about how the U.S. Border Patrol and I'm not even necessarily sure what other agencies we would call them, has specifically tried to funnel immigrants, illegal immigrants who were trying to cross the the border into more dangerous passages and she was talking about how this was such a horrible thing and i was like well on the same time like they are trying to cross the border illegally and we can't let everybody in and she's like oh no i think we can let everybody in and i was like wait a minute uh we cannot let everybody in
0: so your date was partly right it is true that the ramp up in border enforcement in in the most heavily trafficked areas in the 80s and part of the 90s so talking about san diego sector douglas arizona el paso there was big build up of border enforcement and the theory was they weren't trying to funnel people to dangerous areas to kill them but the theory was I'm only relaying what she no, no, no. said yeah, yeah that's yeah. right so we're correcting her and it's really easy to correct somebody who's not here exactly especially somebody it's the easiest and, thing possible and it, I assume it didn't work out I assume, <laughs> no. okay so, so <laughs> this th- was not a good first date yeah yeah so especially they, <laughs>
1: after this discussion as you can <laughs> so they weren't they
0: weren't actually trying to funnel people what the belief was that parts of the border that were marked by rivers which are easy to drown in and by the desert like sonora desert arizona new mexico were so dangerous and so full of hazard that people just wouldn't even try they would be quote-unquote natural barriers And it turned out people tried and they died by the thousands. So it sounds like she's imputing some intentionality. The intention was that nobody would ever try to do that. I didn't
1: know the details, but I was trying to say the same thing, which is that you can't attribute intention to something that obviously has a certain degree of separate logic. We do need to protect the border. And this is one of the things that I think gets lost in all the discussion is that the U.S.-Mexican border is like no other border in the world. There isn't another very wealthy country that borders... Especially with a, such a large border, but obviously we're the most wealthy country in the world, but there isn't another developed uber-wealthy country that shares a border with an
0: incredibly poor country. Yeah. Uh, so well, that, I
1: shouldn't say, well, maybe not incredibly poor, but let's say substantially
0: poorer country. Yeah. so let's let's a couple things. So Mexico is, if you take the idea of first and third world countries, Mexico's barely a third world. It's like one of the wealthiest third world countries. If you compare Mexico's GDP to like Guatemala, it's not even close. So Mexico Mexico is by global standards on the kind of high end. It's sitting alongside the wealthiest country in the world. The contrast is drastic. If you put Mexico in a kind of global perspective, it's not as poor as one might think. And it's never the poorest people who immigrate. They can't immigrate. It's never the poorest people. And especially now where border fortification is fairly heavy, as your date pointed out, people have to go if they cross.
1: They have to be very ambitious people. They have to
0: be ambitious. And if they cross undocumented as they had for decades, increasingly you had to pay a smuggler and that cost money. But I want to go back to something you mentioned about being pushed into corners and the idea that there are people who, and this is kind of one of my beefs with the immigration debate, and I think our sense of it, which is that on the one side you have people who are kind of liberals and they want open borders. On the right, you have people who are super conservative and they want to deport everyone. And I actually don't think that's true. That is to say, I don't think conservatives want to deport everyone. In fact, and again, this comes from the research that I've done based on some on survey data and also on in-depth interviews, but conservatives certainly much more in favor of enforcing but also pretty strong support given everything that we know for a legalization program. And people on the left, including, we did interviews with people who were DACA recipients, people who were themselves undocumented, Latinos who were born in the United States. And even those people say, you do have to have some border security. You can't just let everyone come across. There are some dangerous people coming across. So the, the kind of notion that people want open borders.
1: Well, no, but there are people who talk like this. I'm not trying to portray it by any means that this is a large portion of the population. And this is the thing that happens with social media is it am- Amplifies the most loud, the most aggressive, the most radical voices on both sides. And then people get this impression, usually the wrong impression, that lots of people agree with them.
0: I think that's right. And I think you portrayed the caricatures accurately, but I actually don't think those caricatures represent what people think.
1: But at the same time, though, it is important to have a discussion because, and let me give you another example. So I had a student who was a wonderful student. He was from Tibet and he was a, I guess what we would call a second generation. People always get confused, as I'm sure you know of first and second generation. So his parents were the immigrants and he was the son of
0: the- He was born here in the I
1: don't know if he was born here. I I forget. I mean, I thought it was the parents or the first generation. And then regardless of whether or not he was born here, he would be second.
0: It depends on where you yourself are. So if he was born here, he would be second. And then if he came as a child, he would be considered first.
1: Well, that gets confusing though, because if the parents weren't born here and they bring the child, especially if they're very young, then to me, they fit the profile of second. But anyway- This may not
0: surprise you, but there are people who have broken it down (laughs) even further say, oh, no, 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 he would be a 1.25 generation. Oh, gosh. Okay. Like, well, the 1.3 generation, the 1.38 and the 1.3 point 0075. No, I'm joking.
1: It's academia. And it, you, you, could, you, you believe it. I could sell it. You, totally you could believe sell me on this I believe it. So <laughs> regardless of those specific distinctions, I actually don't think, and now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think he was born here. So, he would have been a, a 1. Point something. something. Okay? okay. Fair enough. But his parents were with him and they brought him here. All right. And so, he, of course, Wanted to write most of his papers. I was teaching this introductory writing class, and he wanted to write most of his papers about immigration. And of course, as I do with anybody, I try to instruct them that you have to address both sides of this issue. And it was pretty clear by many discussions with him, because it was a very involved class, that nobody at any point in his high school or earlier educational experience had ever pushed him to do this. And I said to him, flatly, just like I said to you earlier, I said, You realize we can't let everyone in. And his reaction immediately, this is verbatim, what happened? He said there And stared at me and he said, Never thought about that. That is a little terrifying that nobody until college had ever said to him, We can't let everybody in. We have to have some kind of program. Salam, who you're going to discuss things with a little bit later, he writes in his book that 700 million people were identified as wanting to go from a poor country to a rich country, self identifying as seeking to do that if possible. And specifically, of those 700 million, 100, and I think it was, I could be getting the number wrong but it was around 160-something million people identified the U.S. <laughs> as their top destination. Okay, so obviously that means most people actually identified other other countries. So we're not the only country, right? They probably want to go to Germany or France or Sweden or Denmark or or the U.K., you know, many other places, right? Or possibly Japan, although they let no one in, as you know. But we cannot let, obviously, those 165 million people in. We can only let in a very small fraction, regardless of whether they're coming from Mexico or Tibet. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. It's just not remotely possible and there are people who have now started to talk with young people because i I hear this from my students as if this was somehow possible i heard this recently from somebody who has multiple graduate degrees okay who is not a young person who was acting like oh no maybe we could just kind of work something out where people could cross borders without penalties or and i sat there and stared dumbfoundedly just like my student had stared at me like when i
0: teach my immigration classes we start off with the moral philosophy of immigration. And there is a camp of moral philosophers, political philosophers who think that any moral reasoning argument should get you to open borders. And there's a camp that says that there's a guy named Michael Walzer who says that countries are like clubs and clubs have a right of self-determination. And part of self-determination is saying who gets in and who doesn't and who has to leave. And he has some qualifications to that. But the world that we live in is one bounded by borders. And within those borders, there are nations states. And that form of political organization suggests that people have a right to say and determine who gets to join and who doesn't.
1: You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Tomas Jimenez, Professor of Sociology and Comparative Race and Ethnicity at Stanford University.
2: I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments in leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Let's continue with
0: our conversation with Stanford University's Tomas Jimenez. And I think part of what you're getting at that is as a practical matter, you potentially couldn't let everyone in. I want to come back to that and put a pin in that. But also as a matter of democracy, of self-determination, that the people who are part of the national club have a right to say who's in their club. And I don't disagree with that. Within that idea, there's a lot that can be said. So, for example, the argument has been made. And so the idea that 160 million people want to come here is not the same as 160 million people actually trying to come here. Right. I mean, no, but
1: at the same time, if you did have an open border policy, maybe not 160 million people would immediately get in boats, right, and try to invade the United States. But let's say all we'd have to have is 30 million people apply. Still, probably have to have some kind of application process just so you know who's coming. Well, that would be absolutely untenable. It would be obscene. There's 35 million people in Canada. We can't absorb Canada into the United States within a short period of time. I mean, that's just we don't even have to say 160 million people. We have to say a figure much smaller, and it's just completely ridiculous.
0: The argument that we can't let everyone in has been made about the refugee population and refugee and asylum population. And that's actually an area where we have shrunk the numbers of refugees and asylees that we're going to allow in to the smallest, if I'm not mistaken, that they've ever been. And so I actually think that setting aside the theoretical situation where 30 million people want to come here all at the same time, we do have capacity to take in, I think, and in keeping with our tradition, our ideals, our identity, going back to self-determination, who are we, who do we think we want to be, kind of gets embodied in our immigration policy. We do have the capacity, and one might argue, maybe some moral responsibility to take in more refugees at a time when we have the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Oh, it is a
1: crisis. And that's one of the things that I think is really lost on the right-wing side of the discussion is is that it's a humanitarian crisis. And there's not enough empathy when they see this gigantic caravan right. and this documentation, which we would not have had in the 19th century. If we had had televisions of massive people coming to Ellis Island, maybe they wouldn't have been let in, right? Right. I mean, this is something to think about. But there certainly isn't enough empathy. But at the same time, there's humanitarian crisis all around the world, I think is how people might look at it and say, well, what's the difference just because these people can get here?
0: Right. So people who seek asylum are people by definition who get here and then claim asylum. And then there's a refugee population, which is more of a political declaration that a population is considered refugees. And I'm actually thinking less of even the Central American asylum seekers and more of Syrian refugees, Iraqi refugees, who are hundreds of thousands of people being driven from their homes, mostly going to Europe. There are some countries, Germany, that has been disproportionately generous relative to other places in the world. And so I just think that our history should teach us that it's important for us to do our part.
1: Well, that's become a massive issue in Germany. That might literally usurp the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. There is a strong possibility that that could have killed both of those parties. That within the next 10 years, you could literally have a rising up of alternative parties just because people are so upset about that. So I studied in Berlin and people say that parts of berlin are just not recognizable anymore because you have these massive immigrants who don't know the language who aren't necessarily employable and it's changed not just the culture but of course there is it's inevitable that if people don't know the language they don't have the job skills that crime is going to go up
0: that's not so clear i don't know the german case but the united states has actually a very strong track record of helping refugees get on their feet and refugees making enormous contributions to the country we have a lot bigger country than germany and and the relationship between crime and immigration and I can't speak for the I don't know the data from the German case but here's a place where I think the data from the United States might be instructive but the clear pattern is that immigrants are way less likely to commit crime way less likely and in fact it's including
1: but, illegal immigrants
0: yes and it's part of the reason why I mean so illegality is you know there's immigration violation which is a civil offense not a criminal offense but one of the reasons why we've had an enormous drop in crime Rates in the last 25 years, 30 years. I mean, it's really amazing how much safer the United States is. And there are lots of reasons why. But one of the reasons is that that was exactly the time we had a massive influx of immigrants. So we basically flooded big cities with people who are much less likely to commit crime. So I don't know that it's inevitable that the crime rate goes up. I think what happens is in any population, there are going to be people who commit crime. And when there's a heavy focus of attention on a certain population, like the refugees, in Germany, if there is one or two people who commit a crime, it is tends to tag the entire population as criminal. I'm
1: telling you what I know from people who, who live in Berlin and tell me how much it's transformed now. Of course, they could be wrong, but at the same time, so in their case, they let in almost a million people. I think it was actually more than a million people and the German population is like 80-something million. So that's actually a very large number in an incredibly small period of time. Yeah. So it stands to reason that it could have a very dramatic effect and it's also getting a job in Europe is much harder than it is to get a job in the United States. The regulations are much more strict and more thorough.
0: This actually goes exactly to my point. I mean, we're a country of 320 million, and I think we could afford to let in more than a few thousand <laughs> refugees and asylees. We can handle that. It's not going to ruin the United States. We're stronger than that.
1: But just to press back on this a bit, though, don't you think the, the counter-argument would be that if you let in the asylum seekers, I don't know if you're arguing for letting them all in, but let's say you let in a large number of them, that it would just encourage more asylum seekers Because there is evidence that a lot of the people who are claiming asylum and saying they're fleeing violence from Honduras or Guatemala are actually just doing that because they know that this is what people want to hear and that what's actually going on is they're just seeking a better life.
0: So they're economic migrants and not people escaping violence. So
1: I can't assess all that evidence. This is not my area of expertise, but I just know that this is part of the debate.
0: It is certainly part of the debate. It's hard to know who's doing that or not, but we have a screening process and that screening process requires the people who seek asylum to actually prove their case. And it turns out there's a lot of variation depending on which asylum court you wind up in. But it turns out that in a lot of those courts, most get rejected. Their asylum cases are rejected. So you can show up and be an economic migrant and claim asylum, but especially
1: right now... Do you have you, to
0: prove that
1: you're I mean, in some respects that you're fleeing violence or something? Or... You
0: do. So there is a kind of initial assessment which says is there a credible case here to be made based on what this person has told me, but then when you actually make the case to try to be granted asylum, which will give you a green card and then ultimately allow you to get citizenship, you actually have to build a really strong case and go before an asylum judge and make your case.
1: But then isn't that postponed though sometimes for up to years and then yeah, hit- but- well, it's and then so then backlogged. And then basically they start working and then they're here for months. They can And be. then they try to use that as a pivot to say, hey, look, I've already been here for three years and I'm doing well and I haven't committed any crimes and I'm a productive member of society. So isn't that part of the argument that anti-immigrationists or restrictionists is probably the better word? Yeah,
0: it is definitely part of their argument. Right now we're incarcerating people if they remain in the United States who are asylum seekers. so And we are putting them in places that, that look like jails and prisons. And this is not... Not to mention the child separation policy, or we're making them stay in Mexico, which by some accounts is a violation of international treaties and certainly norms. So it, it is certainly the case. So what do you do with people while they're waiting for their asylum claim to be adjudicated? And there's lots of ways to handle that. What do you think is the best way? <sighs> this is a bit outside of my area of expertise. I mean, if I had to... just curious. Sure I mean, hiring more asylum judges would certainly help. But are there people
1: qualified for that? And that's one of those things to think about. Are there actually... It doesn't strike me as a really sexy piece of law, especially since you have to, to go and live um, near probably the borders, which is probably not necessarily the most desirable place for a young law school grad to go. You haven't watched Law and Order Asylum <laughs> Court? <laughs> no, no I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen the pilot either. That, that, didn't, that uh, didn't work. Yeah, I don't, I don't think
0: that wouldn't work out. No, regardless of administration, this is this would be tough. The Trump administration has a particular approach that I think totally deserves the criticism it's going to get. But even if you had an administration that, let's say, was much more friendly to immigrants, had much more welcoming policies Policies, this would still create a strain, an administrative strain. How do you hire asylum judges fast enough? Where do you keep people? These are questions I don't necessarily have the answer to.
1: Well, I wasn't necessarily putting the pressure on you to have them. It was more just maybe you would have a different,
0: yeah. more I mean,
1: informed I, view than I do.
0: Well, maybe I'm punting a little bit and maybe just recognizing that under the best of circumstances, even under an administration that, that had a different orientation towards who these people are and what they deserve, this would still create an administrative Right, and, and, no and, 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 doubt that's, about and that's
1: and that's I think sometimes I see from people on the left, especially the radical left, they don't acknowledge the incredible difficulties here. It's oh, not, no, I mean, oh, like no it's incredibly different, no matter. And that's going back to the idea that this is a humanitarian crisis that I think needs to be the primary emphasis. This is a humanitarian crisis that deserves our empathy, it deserves our attention, it deserves organization. But to act like there are easy answers is reckless on both sides. It's reckless on the right, or I use the left hand there. <laughs> It's my can, right. They it's cannot my right. Exactly, I appreciate that. Yeah, exactly. we facing each other. Right. It's <laughs> no, reckless on the right it's rec- uh, 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 and it's reckless on the left.
0: And I actually think just more generally and Rehan and I, I think we'll, we'll touch on this. Rehan and I actually see eye to eye on a lot of stuff on immigration. At least I think so. We'll find out. <laughs> right. But um, I actually think it. And I wouldn't say it's reckless, but it does not help the debate when we draw each other and in some ways ourselves in caricatures. And in fact, people who are asylum seekers, people who are are adjudicating asylum claims, people on just on the southern side of the border and even just across the border who are trying to help these people, the farmers who have people coming across their land and even those people themselves, if you talk to them, recognize the complexity of the issue. They'll say, "Of course I don't want people trekking across my farm, but if somebody treks across my farm and they're starving and they need water and they're cold, I'm going to do the Christian thing. I'm going to give them water, I'm going to house them." For one account of a farmer who is very conservative, when asked do you turn people in? He says, no, I ask them where they want to go and I drive them there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a human aspect to it that I think that you're rightly emphasizing. And that human aspect means that especially on issues of immigration, but not exclusively, there's all kinds of ambivalence. It's really messy. And to try and say that the issue can be solved or even organized neatly into left or right or center, it just betrays the complexity of the issue. And I actually think is part of what makes it hard to come up with a workable Solution. Well, yeah.
1: And don't you think a lot of the name-calling really is not helpful? And this idea that anyone who opposes anything other than open borders, and you see this on social media, is yeah. a racist. It's yeah. like, well, first off, let's be specific here, because opposing foreigners is not racism. That's xenophobia. Let's use the correct well, word, right? Okay, that doesn't mean racism isn't. It can't be involved. There's a lot of messiness, and I would say not useful methods of how we talk about race and ethnicity in this country, right? We still use what David Hollinger calls the racial pentagon. White, black, red, in quotes, yellow, in quotes, brown, or quote, Hispanic, in quotes. Hispanic is not a useful term. Like, this is a ridiculous term, in my view. Not, please, if you view it differently, correct me. But in my view, this is obscene. This idea that everyone who speaks Spanish is somehow connected ignores all of the history of immigration to not just Mexico, of course, which is full of plenty of Europeans, right? Light skinned Mexicans are usually of, guess what, European origin, right? as it would be a light skinned. Colombian, okay, mostly Spanish, but not just Spanish. That's an ignorant. I a woman in Texas who was a Mexican-American. She was a first point-something immigrant, but she was from Lebanon. And yeah, there, were yeah. Lebanese, there were a lot Salman of Lebanese— There are a lot of Lebanese— Yes, Sel- exactly. Hayek's the daughter of Lebanese right. immigrants. There are lots of Lebanese immigrants to Mexico. So people are totally ignorant of all this history. And of course, countries like Argentina are 90% of European origin. Brazil is 60% of European origin. In fact, most of South America has an incredible degree of, of European origin. And Mexico, especially Mexico City and places like this. So to this idea of talking about Latino as if it was like some coherent thing, or Hispanic as if it was some kind of coherent thing, is really not intellectual both for the nativists who are
0: contra it, right. and for those, I would say here, the activists who are promoting it. Well, man, this is something we should have talked about about 50 minutes ago, because there's a lot here. The first thing to say is that any of these groupings is not based on some objective reading of who has what ancestry and what proportion is European and what's indigenous. I mean, the fact is, that a lot of places in Latin America, very few people are purely something. They have some indigenous background and some... Mestizo. Europe- mestizo, right? Your viewers can't see me, but I, I look really white. I rarely get Mistaken. For, you could be my brother. We might be. We right, might right. be. I doubt it. But but. Well, no. I'm just be. saying,
1: like, if you, if I told, <laughs> if I introduced yeah. people as you were my brother, I think people would believe it. But even
0: if you, you know, my own background, my great grandmother was Weecho. I mean, I look exactly like her, but she was about 500 shades darker than I am. So there's tremendous mixing, and the notion that there is some objective reading that can be placed on what's the proper way to group things, I think is dubious. So
1: explain that a little bit more. So you would you take issue what I just just or do you do think it's useful or do you don't think it's useful?
0: I don't take issue with the idea that there's lots of people with European ancestry, Middle Eastern, African ancestry in Latin America. And of course, we haven't talked about the Caribbean at all. But even in Mexico, there are people with Chinese immigrants settled in Mexico 100 years ago after they got kicked out of the United States. So there's lots of mixing in these places. And when people come to the United States, the kind of invention of race and ethnicity, that's a classic notion. They're socially constructed. And I actually think this is a appropriate place to to make that that claim.
1: That phrase is misused a lot. But in this case, it's absolutely applicable.
0: It's totally applicable. And any grouping of people is messy. And it goes back to the original part of the conversation, lots of internal diversity. And what's really important is that people think that they're part of this group and that other people think that they're part of this group. And what's not so important is whether there's a certain percentage of mixed ancestry or not. It's what people claim.
1: Well, can I tease some of this out, though, about where I think it's not useful and part of the problem, just to get your response? For instance, so my listeners have probably heard me say this, and I'm not trying to rub it in, but it is true. I did predict that Trump would win 13 months ahead of time and made bets on it to everyone who would bet me. That's amazing. And so, and here's part of what I were a lot he of different- predicted get crushed. Because... <laughs> so part of my reasoning, okay, that I knew, and I can say I knew because it ended up being correct, that Cuban Americans in South Florida do not see their interests as the same as recent first point whatever, or second generation Mexican or Honduran. Or Guatemalan or whatever. So they may be called Latinos and by our demographers and by people tracing voting records and go, oh, well, they're gonna listen to Trump and they're gonna say, oh no, this is the worst thing ever. No, that's not how that's not how it works. People from Central America are very different than people from South America. And the difference between an El Salvadorian and a Guatemalan is very different, I mean, and they view it that way themselves. So to look at this gigantic group and see it as a coherent entity that you can then appeal to I mean, you could, or, you, or,
0: or or offend is a problem. You could make the same argument about Asians. Arguably, it's even more ridiculous The Asian subgroups speak completely different languages. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. That's that's (laughs) my point, though. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's it's an enormous problem. So what's important to know is that these categories are created through a political process. They're created through a social process. And those processes do not necessarily involve some objective reading of who might fit and who doesn't. In the case of the Hispanic category, there's a wonderful book written by my good friend and fellow sociologist at UC Berkeley, Christina Mora, called Making Hispanics. And it's the most comprehensive story I've ever heard about the creation of the Hispanic population and the Hispanic population. The
1: creation of the term or is it? The category.
0: It? The category. Oh, okay. for, for government, I'm going to get this. for government. It's a great book. For government use, but not just for government use, also for media and advertisers. And there was a kind of three organizations that had a common interest in somehow classifying this really broad group, as your point out that spoke Spanish. And so so one organization was the National Council of La Raza, which in late 60s, early 70s, was a regional organization, mainly in Los Angeles. And they wanted to have a national influence. And one of the ways to have a national influence is to make the case that we're actually a really big population. We have to define our population and be able to count the population. And so they wanted to have a national reach. And then you had Univision that wanted to be able to grow and make the case to advertisers that we're not a Miami-based. Based, regional-based organization. Southern California. Right. We are, time, we are we yeah. are big. We're big. Look at how many of our people. Again, we need to count our people. And then the U.S. Census was getting flack for counting Mexicans in particular, but also Puerto Ricans in all kinds of funky ways. Spanish-speaking population, that didn't quite capture because what about people who would claim to, say, be Mexican or Puerto Rican who don't speak Spanish? Then we'll just count Mexicans regionally. And so... The, well, yeah, it strikes so these me that it came out of
1: demographers' laziness, right? Like, it's much well, easier to just look at these things and go, okay, wait, where are you Hispanic or not Hispanic?
0: So these organizations got together and they all had a mutual interest and worked with each other to create this category.
1: So it was self-serving on some level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But all of these categories are in some ways self-serving. So I think what you're getting at partly is in terms of talking about the Cuban population is that racial and ethnic groups can be political interest groups. So I might, for example, see myself as having a lot in common with Rosario Dawson, who's leading the charge to get Latino to vote. She's Puerto Rican. I'm Mexican. But I might see for the purposes of what we're trying to accomplish, I might be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're Latino, Latina, we're Latinx. Let's not get distracted by that. I'm just trying to casting a broad net. But if for other purposes, I'm a Mexican guy with a dad who's a Mexican immigrant, mom who's a granddaughter of Italian immigrants. I grew up in California around a lot of Mexicans. Rosario Dawson's from the East Coast. For me, Caribbean Spanish is really hard to understand. Here we are. We're hopefully intellectuals studying culture. So
1: when we're not talking about a lowbrow, communication or middle brow communication, we're talking about scholarly communication and being precise is obviously an important part of scholarly work and intellectual work. This is, I would say, not a very good way of understanding a, a gigantic group of people with many intricacies, many different groups, and many complexities.
0: So you can treat racial and ethnic categories as categories of practice that people use in their everyday life to make sense of who's in and who's out. And we all create all kinds of mental shortcuts to categorize people. And that's one of them. So that's a category of practice. You can think of race and ethnicity as categories of analysis. And I think this is where your critique is coming in, which is what? A, how do we, as observers who are trying to make sense of society, of politics, of economics, categorize people to make sense of these groupings. And there's not necessarily a perfect overlap, but in fact, there's really a perfect overlap between these things. I will say my orientation in studying these things has actually been to understand how people make sense of race and ethnicity in their daily lives and who they think they are, who they think they're not, who other people are.
1: But do you think at a certain point it becomes reaffined? And it's the same thing happened with white. People didn't talk about, basically, the term white kind of evolved from the middle of the 19th century until the next century over about a course of a hundred years. Before it solidified this was a gigantic (laughs) war between different ethnicities that was won primarily, and this is one of my primary arguments, by the Anglo ethnicity. And something is not necessarily I wouldn't say the same internal conflicts between these groups because they're not encountering each other as much. But there's certainly a loss of culture going on I would say by ignoring the specificity. By ignoring that this is much more complicated. And that if you use that term long enough, it will be self-reinforcing.
0: It will create a monotony. It can. The content of any of these categories and even what goes back to something I said a second, even what people call themselves, is evolving over time. And you point out is certainly true of whiteness, although our founding documents solidified whiteness, right? Citizenship was reserved for free white men who own land. It was enshrined. The well, but legal the know-nothings the...
1: Nothings tried to take that away, right? And the know-nothings were, as, were quite close to being successful in that. The Know Nothings tried to change it, had, out of what was it, 14 governors, had a very large portion of Congress, and had slavery not overtaken that as the central issue, it's definitely conceivable that they might have been successful.
0: The point here, though, is that what appeared to be a legally solidified notion of whiteness even had some vagueness to it. There are a couple of famous Supreme Court cases that challenged the notion that only white people could become citizens, as happened in the 1920s. But even the social category of whiteness, and there's a legal legal category, and that's really important throughout American history. But the social category of whiteness, and this might be partly where your study of Germans becomes important, but also the Southern Eastern European immigrants, that category expands. And by the 1970s, whiteness has an ethnic flavor. You can be a white ethnic, you can be Italian. What what decade did you say? 1970s is kind of where I'm dating this. Well, but
1: by then, but so my argument is that by then it was mostly lost, at least for Germans, who were the most organized, the most voracious in terms of trying to keep their national origin. And that was because there was a very coherent campaign to destroy German culture in America, which primarily succeeded and then, of course, never was able to recover due to the Second World War because of all the shame of the Holocaust and everything else. But I would say that even so, my argument is that because of the war on German culture, other ethnicities were also scared into complying. I think part of this is wrapped up in some of, like in the background, in the unconscious of what's going on with, I would say, immigrant from the South. I do By know
0: the South, I, you mean like I just, Mexico when, when I, uh, yeah, south yeah, of the border. South okay, of the border. Okay, I, not, I'm, not, I'm, trying, not,
1: I'm trying to speak broadly because it's not just Mexican. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, It's, yeah. okay. it's Guatemala okay. and, and and I just mostly be, centr- Central Americans. We're not
0: talking about like people from Georgia moving to Chicago. No, no okay. I, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, That's a term.
1: When, when, like <laughs> I studied in Canada. I did a master's there and you hear that term a lot. The, the immigrants from the South, things like this. So I, so it's part of my rhetoric without knowing that it's not necessarily as common in the U.S. But so part of the resistance to this, and then. Looking for a reaction to this is that a lot of those people have are ethnic, quote unquote, Europeans, not just Germans, of other groups, and have been forced to mostly give up their ethnicity and mostly give up their heritage. And so they look at these new people coming in, and maybe not necessarily being familiar with what happened to all of their different families, because people in America tend to, after say the third or fourth generation, really not pay that much of attention. This is just demonstrably the case, and I don't think people from the South are different. I think no, no, if they're think here long, absolute. if they're here long enough, they really tend to forget their family history. But since the people come from the South are more recent in many cases, not in every case, but in many, okay, they look at this and I think part of it is they see that they have an ethnic culture that is then lionized in the larger culture a lot of times because it's no longer necessarily okay in any circumstance to be proud of any European ancestry, certainly not in academia and certainly not necessarily in mainstream media. And so they see this, and I think this is part of the tension. And I'm not necessarily sure they can articulate why they're resentful, but I think that's there. What, do you think I'm on to something?
0: Um, I mean, or, or am I just no. completely out there? Okay, <laughs> so, all right. So let me say this. So going back to something I started to say, which was the category of whiteness expanding to capture more people. Part of what was going on in the 70s was a notion of American identity brought on largely by the civil rights movement, but also other ethnic pride movements, that part of being American was claiming some ancestry and being proud of it. And that actually had a profound influence on Italian-Americans, on Polish-Americans, on Jews. There was a kind of Marcus Lee Hansen who wrote pretty profoundly about immigration, said what the second generation tries to forget, the third tries to remember. And the third generation in the early 70s and 80s was trying to remember these things at a time when the larger culture was saying it's okay to remember. And so being American, I would argue, one way of being American, there are lots of versions of being American, but one is to be able... to to answer the question, where are you from? Where is your family from? And so they were starting. There was, especially in pop culture, there was this resurgence of pride in immigrant origins, in people's ethnic ancestry. And so one of the other things you mentioned was it's not okay to be proud of European ancestry. I would qualify that. I would say that what I see people balk at is the notion that you're proud to be white. But if somebody says I'm proud to be Italian, and it was really amazing to go to Italy and visit my roots, or I'm Irish and I'm actually giving real life examples here. My wife's Irish and Mexican. We went to Ireland and there was this kind of sense of going back to the homeland and that was pretty cool. And I don't get the sense that people in the circles that I run in, in the classes I teach, that people balk at the notion that you could be proud to be Irish or proud to be Polish or Portuguese, that there's some connection. Well, you don't things.
1: see, but you don't see, but here's the thing, as we just talked about before, demographically speaking, Germans and Irish are the largest are. two yeah. national origins. And there are almost no German-American studies for Programs in the United States, and there are equally almost. I mean, I haven't looked into this, and that's something I study, but I'm pretty sure that there's almost no Irish American Studies scholarly programs in the United States. There and probably
0: so, is somewhere, but you're right. There, not, there, <laughs> there, if there are, it's a handful. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no,
1: Whereas, right. like Asian American Studies, there's literally 45, and Mexican American Studies, I would imagine, there's even more. You see and
0: understand part of what I'm saying here. Yes, I do see what you're saying, and there's also historical reasons for that. It's a timing of when these things happen. What was going on in the country at the time? It is partially a timing thing. Yeah, sure. And, and it, I'll say, and this maybe this is just bragging on my own organization, Stanford University, but we have a center for comparative studies in race and ethnicity that truly and we have sub-majors, and those majors include, it's now called, it's not my term. I'm an old guy now, but it's called Latinx Studies. We have Asian American studies, Native American studies, Jewish studies, and then the sister programs African American Studies. But I will say, as an intellectual unit, the, the study of race and ethnicity and all its forms and all its diversity is really embraced.
1: But I would say, though, that that's probably unique because so my PhD is in American Studies and I came from this. And I'm bragging the, on my own institution right, being and, and kind I, of and now, and now I'm jealous, okay? <laughs> and now I want to then go visit where you are. You should go. Okay, I, I hope so. I hope, I'm hope i waiting for that invite. Okay. Maybe it'll come. Maybe probably a little while, I would say a couple of years, once my book is published. Okay. okay. But I can tell you from first-hand experience, and this isn't, I'm not trying to create some kind of pity fest or anything like this. It's more just, I think you're a good person to bounce this stuff off of, is that the moment I let it be known that I was studying German Americans, I immediately became suspicious. Now, that might be partially because of Germans itself and our continued hesitancy to deal with anything coming remotely close to German pride, okay? I think there's something there. But I was even told things like, if you're a white guy and you're studying white ethnics, you're suspicious. And that's how you will be dealt with on the faculty job market and by other scholars. Unsolicited, people would just give this as a
0: piece of advice Who to are me. these people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not suggesting you name names, but like, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to name specific names. Are these fellow but faculty, faculty, faculty okay, members, okay. and
1: graduate students. Okay. You will be treated as suspicious and borderline unemployable. I don't. Well, dude, this was real advice. I'm
0: not. I'm not crafting this. It's hard for me to speak to what these people said. Some of the scholars I admire most are white men who study white immigrants. Matt Fry Jacobson, and when I talked about that kind of, I don't know if you know who he is, but no, he, I do. Yeah. he's a he's he's still at Yale still, isn't he? But he's a historian who studied the ethnic. Press resurgence among Europeans and has written very eloquently about race. David Rodiger, who's written very eloquently about European immigration and idea of whiteness. Richard Alba, who's my academic hero. Who... But
1: they're a little bit older though. All those people, I don't know. It's hard for me. People seem to have my age all over the place. So I graduated just two years ago and I can just tell you in the current climate, all right, <laughs> this is not a friendly environment Yeah, yeah. to be studying. So there's a direct phrase used frequently if you're a white person studying white people, it's not going to go well for you, is basically the idea. And I think this is reflective of something larger within the culture that I'm not, I mean, obviously the people, the people who are going to Trump rallies are not exactly no, in my experience I, I mean, reflective at all. But this reflects a larger sea change, which I think is embodied in their resentment potentially. And you talked about it yourself earlier in the discussion. This is about status. Okay, well, isn't that a form of status? This idea that you can't have any interest in your own ethnicity, but then these new people coming in. Some that's of that's okay. no, Some of them are new. i, not getting... I, I t- no, no, no. I'm saying for the people who are at Trump rallies, that's oh, that's, that's I that, see. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, their, yeah, Their target is the new people. Maybe some oh, of them I are see targeting. Where I see where maybe going. some okay. of them are targeting second and third generations. Okay, but I think most of the, at least overtly, the the target is new people coming in. Am I making
0: sense? I think so. A I little think bit. So it's a kind of me tooism. Like, why can't I be uh-huh. like you? Right.
2: That's that, what that, I'm trying to say. That's yeah. What, and this what? is from
0: the Trump people. As far as like an intellectual interest, we can talk like academic to academic. When you said I studied Germans, this is God's honest truth. My media thought, oh, that's fascinating. Right. Because I've been reading about this because I'm writing a book about Arizona and New Mexico right now. And I'm reading and a lot of people want to draw this straight line from New Mexico's like more pluralistic origins to its like more friendly immigration policies. And New Mexico is one of the most ardent anti-German states in the Union during World War II. Oh, that's World. interesting. I, yeah. I,
1: I'm, I'm not as familiar with that. I'll have to look into that. Because New Mexico was so small at that time, I wouldn't, it hasn't received a ton of attention.
0: No, so anyway, I bring this up because I actually think, and maybe this is just an opportunity to press back against maybe some of what you've heard, that I think there's some, lazy thinking sounds kind of harsh, but about the ability to compare different group experiences. And I found it, studying mostly contemporary immigration, but my actually interest in studying contemporary immigration comes in part from my reading of historical immigration, largely European immigration, and thinking like, what can we learn from that experience that looks like today, what doesn't look like today? Well, and, absolutely. And so I actually think what well, you're doing yeah. is really important and biographically, the reason I got interested in, and you mentioned my first book, which is about anyone who wants to buy it, it's called Replenished Ethnicity, which is about the descendants. of <laughs> Very other, nice plug Yes, yes. That. Very subtle. Yes, obviously, absolutely. Obviously, I have a lot of experience doing this, which is about later generation Mexican-Americans. I got really interested in this because I come, my mom's side of the family is Italian. My, most of my Italian immigrant ancestors came these are my great-grandparents, came in 1912, 1910, and then my dad's side of the family is Mexican, and my dad was undocumented as a child. He was a migrant farm worker. He came mid-century. He's been a U.S. citizen for, since 1964. But I got really interested in being like, well, there's this one experience that looks really unlike this other experience. What's different? One of the differences, there's been this really long wave of immigration. Like, what would have happened if Italian immigration kept going? And you're pointing out that some of these waves of immigrants did go for a while, right? Well, like the German, German Well, the
1: German case is so that's why when i was reading your work i was saying hey wait germans have many waves they start coming in the 1820s and they're really the first major group along with the Irish, that really start coming because this is mostly an english country people don't realize this that's why i haven't read her book yet but jill Lepore got a lot of pushback when she started writing recently in this book that i think it was just published within the last couple months where like this country has always been multicultural it's like that is kind of an absurd claim okay like maybe if we're taking the totality of the territory that it was multicultural but if we're talking about what was the United States, it was not multicultural at all. And so it isn't until basically the 1820s that you start to see Germans and Irish come. Then they really start coming in the 1830s and 1840s and 50s. And then they get a huge amount of pushback. And this was a massive movement. And actually, in some respects, way, way worse than anything that Trump's doing, because we're talking about violence in the streets, violence at the polls, 21-year restriction on voting and citizenship. It was an intense, intense movement that people really don't understand. So then Germans, of course, don't necessarily come in large numbers, although they still coming during the civil war but then they come again in the 1880s in large numbers and 1890s even larger numbers and then still some at the 1910s but then in the 1910s once this wave of anti-germanism comes they stop coming and then they stop coming during the 1920s but then of course when Hitler comes they start coming again they start coming in large numbers again and then they come they start coming post then there's east germans fleeing and in the 1850s there's a lot of waves 1950s. what did i say 1850 okay thank you for the
0: people from the eastern part of Germany. Yeah, coming right. to, uh, Thank you for the correction. This, no, I learned something. Today. So I learned a lot today. I always associate German immigration as mid-19th century. I hadn't realized they were coming in such large numbers so late. So that's really and important. so many waves, right? I mean, yeah, so many. That's a really important insight and to think about what did we do in terms of policy? What did we do socially to Germans, to Italians, the Chinese? And the idea, of one of the points of history is to not repeat the things that we don't like about our history and then to take things that are inspiring, galvanizing, and use those to inform what we do today. And I think maybe what you're implying is that we haven't learned some of those lessons and some really sad ways history repeats itself. And I also think that part of what you're doing, and again, I'm not speaking for the people who talk to you about the academic job market, but part of what's important about your work and these conversations is that it does create a larger American story, that we find the common threads, and this is me speaking less as an academic and more of, I don't know, advocate if you want to call me that, but we find those common threads and we find ways to weave them into a larger fabric that we think we share. I actually think that's really important. I think it's important for people who, I think in particular, like, it would be great if my grandfather, who, God rest his soul, was a second generation son of Italian immigrants to sit down with the children of immigrants today and they would have a lot in common. They'd have a lot to talk about even though they grew up in very different times. And I think that knowing that history, sharing those stories, you start to actually see, it becomes less kind of a study in contrast and actually studying commonality and there's a sense of oh that american story is part of my american story even though that one was a hundred years ago and mine's today that's the american story and that's my own advocacy vision and maybe an informal encouragement for you to keep doing what you're doing and draw those common threads and i actually think it's helpful for the conversation
1: you've been listening to keeping it civil a production of the school of civic and economic thought and leadership at arizona state university If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Do not forget to tell your friends and family about the show and all the many great things we're doing here at Skettle. That is the best way you can show your support and help us grow.
0: Thanks for listening.